You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The prevalence of cyber and the, the fact that people have access to so much more data now means that insider threat is more often than not related to what people have access to in their day-to-day jobs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio joins us. She speaks with Tom Langford, CISO at London Insurance Markets. They're talking about insider threats. All right, Joe, before we kick things off with our stories, we've got a little bit of follow-up. Uh, but first, I want to recognize we are at episode 250. I think that's, that's right. A quarter of a thousand episodes, Dave. <laughs> that's, a, that's a mark worth noting, I believe. It yeah. is. Yeah. I would say congratulations, Dave. Congratulations. So, likewise. Right back at you there, my friend. 250 episodes. Yes. Yeah. All right. So we've got some follow-up here. Uh, what do we got, Joe? So Waller writes in, he says, I love the show, been listening for longer than I can remember, well, at least 250 episodes, right? Yeah. Uh, I came across this video from IBM today and thought you might want to share it with your listeners. I'll be sharing with my friends and family. And it's a pretty good video. It's just on YouTube, uh, and it's a video about social engineering attacks. It tells you about all the stuff that motivates people for uh, victims in social engineering attacks and how the attackers use it. Talks about credential harvesting and things like that. It's a good video. It's about yeah. 15 minutes long. Yeah. Um, definitely worth a look. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, it's one of those things you can uh, share around with your friends and family. And if they're interested, it might help uh, bring them up to speed. Indeed. But, yeah, well, well produced. Yes. All right. Well, let's do some stories here, Joe. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, I'm going to start off with talking about the Verizon data breach investigation report from 2023. That's this year, Dave. Yep. Uh, yep. They released this, I think, last month or, or early this month. I can't remember when, but it's yeah. been out for a while. And we haven't talked about it yet here on this show. Right. Uh, and if you are, if you just Google Verizon DBIR, this is one of my favorite reports that comes out every year, uh, mainly because of the really nice pictures and all the really good summaries and, yeah. and, uh, some of the, I don't know, somewhat snarky language that they write these with. It's pretty pretty amusing to read. I mean, it's not yeah. a dry report. It's, no. it's it, I, I actually appreciate that writing style. Yeah. Uh, it 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 come it might come off as a little bit unprofessional to somebody, but you know what? I'd rather read something that interests me and keeps me interested than something that bores me to tears. Yeah, and I'll I'll note that it it is one of the most respected and anticipated reports every year. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of interviewing some of the authors over on the CyberWire, and uh, yeah, it's 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 one of the one of the one of the reports that you can recommend uh, uh, without hesitation. Yep, absolutely, I would yeah. agree with that. But on page thirty-one of the report is where they begin their social engineering uh, talk, hmm. and one of the things they've said is that it says social engineering incidents have increased from the previous year, largely due to the use of pretexting is the lie that they tell you before they uh, ask you for something. Because right. if if I called you and said, hey, Dave, I'm, I'm a bad guy and I want you to wire me a bunch of money because I just want it, you, you wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> Probably so not, no. I need to have some kind of lie to tell you that, hey, uh, Dave, it's, it's me, Peter, uh, and I need you to wire some money to one of our sponsors because we overcharge them or something, right? Right, right. Um, so that's, that's what pretexting is. 
It's most commonly used in business email compromise attacks. It's doubled since last year. And the average loss in the social engineering attacks is now over $50,000. They break down the frequency in, in, their, in their report, their incident report. There's, these are, I think these are, this is composed from incidences that Verizon security organization that they contract out uh, to other companies responded to. They responded yeah. to uh, 1,700 incidences, and over half of them had uh, data disclosure. And these were social engineering instances. The threat actors were almost all from the outside. Hmm. There were some internal and some partner threats, but they're listed here as like 1%. I'm going to guess there's some that's a rounding error and that they're somewhere less than 1%, but it's mostly going to come from the outside, these social engineering attacks. And no surprise here, the motivation of these people is almost 90% financial. Uh, mm. The other 11% is espionage, where they want they want to get some information. But 90% is uh, they're looking for money. And I'll bet, and I'll, I'm not, not going to bet, I'm going to tell you that the other 11% is they're just monetizing it differently. They're just not costing the company money directly. If they're going in and getting a bunch of employee records, they're selling those records and monetizing it that way. If they're getting data, they're selling that data and monetizing it that way. Right. right. That's what's happening. The data that's compromised is 76% of these attacks included credential compromises. Now, credential compromises are really easy to prevent against, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, some of them are internal. About a quarter of them come from internal people. Uh, so that's an insider threat, and it, it, that kind of ties in nicely with what we're talking about with our interview today. Th these people may not be malicious, but they are definitely working on the inside. I want to to complain a little bit about some language in the report. Hmm. And, okay. And, and this, is, this is something that I am kind of a stickler for. It says, <laughs> you? Yes. <laughs> me. Go on. That's Go right. on, Joe. Go on. It says, one of the more complex social engineering attacks is the BEC, this business email compromising. In these pretexting attacks, actors leverage existing email threads and context to request that recipient, uh, the recipient conduct a relatively routine task, such as updating a vendor's bank account. And then it goes on to say, for example, they might have spun up a lookalike domain that closely resembles the requesting party and possibly even updated the signature block to include their phone number instead of the phone number of the vendor. This is one of the things that, that kind of bugs me. Verizon is not the only group that does this, and maybe I've already lost this battle, but a business email compromise attack is when an, a business email address has been compromised. Uh, it's much more devastating because the attack is coming from a legitimate business email address, right. as opposed to being from an outside one, which could be mitigated against with something like DMARC or, or some other uh, protections that let you know, hey, this is an outside, you know, that big thing that comes up that says this is an outside email. If you see that yeah. on a lot of email systems, uh, even if somebody is impersonating your email address closely, you'll still get that message because the machine knows, you know, the machines know this is a different uh, domain. This is not coming from the inside. Right. Uh, later on in the report, down on page 34, it says business email compromise can be targeted internally, meaning that the attacker will leverage a compromised employee's email account. So, they get it right later on in the compromise, but I really think it's important to differentiate between business email compromise attacks where someone has actually compromised a legitimate business uh, email address to somebody where, you know, the call is coming from inside the house and an external attack where someone's just impersonating your address. I think that's, I think that's an important distinction to make because you defend against both of those differently. And, and I think that if you just call impersonation business email compromise, if you think of it that way, there are 
different defenses that are available to you that you're going to miss that are not going to be there for you. In this report, the uh, Verizon folks say they like a tool called the uh, Center for Internet Safety's controls, you know, controls, security controls, critical security controls is what it's called. Hmm. And it's just, they refer to it as CIS controls, CIS for Center for Internet Safety. And they talk about uh, the protections you could put on accounts. And the one of the big ones they list here in granting access is require multi-factor authentication for externally exposed applications and, and network access. I would also say require it even in-house for uh, email access uh, mm-hmm. or accessing any of your, your suite type products. Like if you have Microsoft 365 or Google Suite, whatever it is. Right. Use multi-factor authentication to authenticate people of that. You know, the, the report is much more than these few short pages on uh, social engineering. It's actually 89 pages long, and it's a good read every year. So I would recommend picking it up. Yeah, it's interesting, too, how, you know, we think about what sort of things we should um, apply multi-factor authentication to. And people think of obvious things like your banking credentials and, you know, those sorts of things. But really, the key to all of this is your email account. Absolutely. Because that's, it is, that's it, where you do password research. Even on a personal email account, whatever your personal email account is, you should be using some kind of multi-factor authentication on that because that is your the keys to your kingdom. Yeah. If I can compromise your email account, I can compromise your bank account next. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder. All right. Well, we will have a link to the DBIR. As you said, it is, uh, it's an interesting read and, and one of those reports that's certainly worth your time. My story this week comes from the Stamford Advocate, which is from uh, Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, this is, uh, it's, uh, it's from uh, Pat Tomlinson, who's a staff writer at the Stamford Advocate, and it's titled, A Stamford Man Allegedly Stole $1 Million from 700 DoorDash Drivers. Police say his victims are hard to ID. So, a million dollars from 700 DoorDash drivers? Yeah. That's so, more than $1,000 a person. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so, you know, DoorDash drivers, this is one of the popular uh, sort of... Uh, Jobs you can get in the gig economy here where you can sign up to be a DoorDash delivery person and you'll have an app that you use and it'll it'll ping you and say, you know, so-and-so wants, uh, really needs, uh, you know, a bag of Oreos. <laughs> and it's your job to go to the store, pick up the Oreos and deliver them to the person and, and you get paid for that. So this story tracks uh, starts off by tracking uh, a DoorDasher named Alexis Cleveland, who said that she got a call uh, during a DoorDash delivery. She was working for DoorDash. She's 29 years old. And um, she got a call, or a text rather, that said uh, that she should not complete the order. And then after getting the text, there was a phone call, which came from a person claiming to be a DoorDash support team member. And uh, this woman says, the guy said he was from DoorDash and he told me not to complete the order. He told me to go back to my car and then he had me verify my identity. He said there was a scam going on that Dashers were involved in and they needed to make sure I wasn't involved. Uh Um, Yeah, so this was part of a phishing scam. So what happens is the person who calls sent her a link via text and then asked her to sign in to her DoorDash account in order to verify her identity. Right. And that right? is a credential harvesting. So the, right. 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 And, of course, the link doesn't go to DoorDash. 
Um, but then he told her that she wouldn't be able to access her account or her earnings for about four days. Really? So, yeah. So what do you so think she's going not on expecting there, any deposits? Well, what's happening? Well, I think what, what he's doing is he's trying to put a delay on her raising a red flag by right. saying, you know, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a fake link that's going to look like a DoorDash login. You're going to go to that link. You're going to log in. I'm going to give you your my credentials to log in. Right. Then you're going to go to my DoorDash account and change the uh, destination for any money that I'm supposed to get to your bank account. Or even just change the credentials altogether so that he has access and she doesn't. Right. But by telling her that she won't be able to access the account for a few days, he's trying to put her off from worrying about that. Right. Um, and then he also said that if she did a certain amount of dashes over those four days, she would get a $900 bonus. I see. Yeah, this guy's essentially getting people to work for him for free. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So he's incentivizing her to put in some extra work to get extra you know, uh, door dashes, and then he will take all of the money and reroute it to himself. Yes, that makes, I get it. That, that, that's, that's actually a pretty smart scam. Yeah. Uh, you have to find door dashers first. Um, right. And then, you know, so I don't know if that's uh, how, you, how you go about doing that. Maybe you, uh, I don't know, I guess you send each phone number a distinct, uh, a unique link. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure how this this article doesn't say how he went about finding DoorDashers, but I'm guessing that probably wouldn't be hard. Probably wouldn't hard be hard to buy that information. You know, correct. I'll bet that information is pretty easy to come by. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, the police in Stamford, once they were on the case here, they found that he had uh, over 1,750 transactions linked to over 700 different DoorDash accounts. And he had stolen over $950,000. Wow. Yeah, over several years. So this started in 2020, so right in the midst of the pandemic. Right, when DoorDash was taken off, right? Right, yeah, because yeah. nobody wanted to leave their house. Right. Yeah. So uh, he's facing charges of first-degree larceny, third-degree identity theft, two counts of second-degree forgery, trafficking in personal identifying information, and first-degree computer crime for the alleged scam. So they're throwing the book at him. Uh, it says uh, they seized $733,000 from his apartment. In cash? I think so. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the guy just has $700,000 laying around in cash. Yeah. Yeah. That's like that's like that scene in Breaking Bad when, when Walter White and his <laughs> wife are standing there looking at all this money. Right. <laughs> what do you do right. with this? Right. So obviously this hurts the the door dashers. Uh, you know, several people lost several thousand dollars. A couple yeah. people here, uh, you know, ranging from a few hundred dollars to some folks who claimed they had over five thousand dollars stolen from this person. Well, but, maybe they can uh, get some of that back in that uh, from that large seizure of cash that they got from his apartment. Yeah, that's what they're hoping for. Um uh, and it's sort of a side note on this story. They said that they're they're having trouble identifying all of the door dashers who got scammed by this person. Yeah. Um, I guess because of the, the kind of transitory nature of these gig economies where people come and go. And, right. You know, uh, someone who found themselves scammed by DoorDash might say, well, I'm done with DoorDash. Right. And they, then, might just, yeah, they might just stop doing the work. They say, well, that guy got four days of free work out of me and that's it. I'm, I'm done. Right. Right. I'm going to Uber Eats. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, interesting story. A, a clever scam. 
and I guess the, the lesson here is uh, just to be wary if someone calls you from, in this case, you know, tech support. Or, yeah. This is, uh, again, singing. don't trust the inbound phone call. You know, make, say, right. okay, hang up and say, I'm going to call, call back uh, customer or, or delivery support here and, and see if this is something going on. Yeah. Uh, don't, you know, when your phone rings or you get a text message, you don't, don't respond to it. Yeah. And this story actually talks about how one of the folks uh, who this person tried to scam did just that, that, uh, right. you know, they called DoorDash and spoke to an actual DoorDash tech support person. And that person had no idea what they were talking about. And so then they, they knew it was a scam. Right. Yeah. Right. So, all right. We will have a link to that story in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Amy, and it's a first because it's an audio catch of the day. Hmm. All so right. Amy writes, hi, guys. I'm writing to share a victory. I've listened to your podcast for a while now, and I appreciate the skepticism I've gained while on the lookout for social engineering. I've attached a voicemail that seems relatively benign on first listen, but it just didn't sit right with me. Please listen, and then I will walk you through the warning signs. So, Dave, go ahead and play the, the, the file. All right. Yes, you need Sergeant Mark Dagnall of the Falls Church Police Department. Ms. Lincoln, the police keep it regarding to an ongoing legal matter. You can reach me directly at 703-239-4840. Again, my number is going to be 703-239-4840. This is Sergeant Mark Dagnall. Speak with you momentarily. So that is an interesting voicemail that yeah. you received. Uh, sounds real official. I mean, it, I think it might be AI-generated. Hmm. Uh, but if I were to if I were to pick what a police officer calling my phone would sound like, this is exactly what he would sound like. Right. Uh, so it's a pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I don't know if it's fake or or whatever, but it's pretty good. It's pretty good voicemail. So yeah. Amy goes on to say, first hearing a named police officer saying he's from a town near me is really concerning. So I was nervous. He also ends up saying that he'll speak to me soon, which I I thought was also kind of intimidating and and. They, I think that the whoever developed this piece of audio did that on purpose. Yeah, it's um, kind of a call to action. Right. Uh, as I pause between reacting and responding, I thought, wait, I'm, not, I'm supposed to be panicked that a police officer is calling me, and the officer saying he'll talk to me soon implies urgency. So that's also supposed to stop me from thinking. Hmm. So I took a deep breath and kept thinking, which is excellent. Good work, mm-hmm. Amy. There's a part where it sounds like he may be saying something that sounds like my name, but that's kind of garbled. And I, I know exactly what she's talking about. If you go back and listen to it, 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 there is like this garbled portion of it. You can't really understand what's being said there. And I think that's also by design. The word that he used that really got me curious was legal. Since police don't deal with legal issues, they generally deal with criminal issues. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I did a reverse lookup on the phone number and that was provided in the voicemail, and it's not the phone number of a, of a police department. Okay, so maybe it's a cell number. But the reverse search shows it's a voice over IP number, and it's associated with the name Dwarma P. The hmm. caller says he's Sergeant Mark Gagnon. Uh, I googled Sergeant Mark Gagnon, and strangely, the first hit is Sergeant Clark Gagnon from the Falls Church Police Department. Hmm. So it's kind of like lining up a little bit, but not yeah. all the way, right. um, which is interesting. So Amy says she still felt nervous about the possibility of it being real. So she had a former police officer friend of hers listen to the message, and then he called the number, and it sent him to voicemail. It was a woman's voice, and he hung up. 
Then he called the Falls Church Police Department. They confirmed that there's no one by the name there. And then the scammer calls back to Amy's friend's phone and identifies himself as Sergeant Mark Gagnon with the Falls Church Police Department. And the person says, well, that's funny because I just talked to the Falls Church Police Department and they've never heard of you. And the scammer just hung up. Yeah, that's right. Which is really good. So my friend told me this, uh, this, and I felt validated and elated, and I was happy that my gut was right. Thank you for all the valuable lessons over all these years and warning all the folks out there getting similar calls. Hmm. Um, so yes, Amy, uh, I am very happy to hear that this worked out for you and that we have provided you the level of skepticism necessary to not be scammed by this. This is yeah. receiving that phone call, not knowing what it is or what it could be, can absolutely just shut you down. You'd be like, I better call this police officer right now. Also, right. by the way, if you actually do get a call from a police officer talking about something, your first call probably shouldn't be to a police officer. It probably should be to an attorney. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, well, I'm I, Amy did everything right here. Yes, she did. You know, she she just from from be- beginning to end. Uh, so, tip of the hat to Amy for that. This scam reminds me of one of my ongoing pet peeves, which is a related. Um, scammy kind of thing where yeah. someone calls and they say, this is uh, officer so-and-so from the such and such police department. Uh, please give me a call back. And you call them back and they're just out soliciting money for donations. Yeah. For the FOP or something. Yeah. 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 And they're not, I mean, it's, you know, I don't know what percentage of the money goes to the, the police or whatever. It might just be completely a scam, but similar to this, they're just using your, uh, reaction, your emotional reaction to being called by the police, they're taking advantage of that. Right. And uh, you just need to be mindful of it. Absolutely. Yeah. If the police really want you, they will show up at your door. That's right. That's <laughs> that's one of the things I, I forgot to mention. If right. if the police have a warrant for your arrest, they will not call you in advance. <laughs> that's right. That's right. They will come and get you. Yes, that is true. All right. Well, our thanks uh, to Amy for writing in. We do appreciate her taking the time. Uh, we would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. It's always great when Carol Terrio joins us. And uh, this week, she has a conversation with Tom Langford, who's the CISO at the London Insurance Markets. And they're talking about insider threats. Here's Carol Terrio and Tom Langford. Well, listeners, today we are talking with Tom Langford. He is a CISO in the London Insurance Markets and a trusted friend of mine. Hello, Tom. Hello, Carol. Today, we're going to talk insider threats. So as a quick overview, an insider threat is kind of defined as a cybersecurity risk that starts within the organization. So it typically occurs when a former employee or maybe a contractor or a vendor or even a partner with a legitimate user credential, and they misuse that to access data to the detriment of the organization's network systems. Is that a fair definition, Tom? Yes, it is. But it's it's also, you know, the insider threat is not something that's new or has just come about as, you know, th- through cybersecurity. We've, there's been insider threats, everything from, you know, espionage, for instance, um, you know, intellectual theft, you know, um, 
let's see, your workplace violence, for instance, or even just theft, you know, financial theft, for instance. So, uh, you know, a financial controller who's channeling money out, that's that's still considered an in, an insider threat. So it's part of a sort of a broader category, but but the prevalence of cyber and the, the fact that people have access to so much more data now means that insider threat is more often than not related to uh, you know the, what people have access to in their day-to-day jobs. Yeah, so, I mean, it is a big kind of area. Do you, is there any categorization inside that? Like, is there a way of, like, measuring it or dividing it up so that we can kind of better understand the profiles of different people? Yeah, I mean, very simply put, um, you've got effectively – malicious and non-malicious threats uh, and they're exactly what they say on the tin so you know malicious means that your insider is deliberately leaking information or is deliberately right. uh stopping your network from working or switching off computers and that's normally the case with disgruntled IT ex IT employees who still have access to systems that they shouldn't have and things like that uh, and the other one is unintentional or you know non-malicious negligence. So people who are just trying to get their job done and might copy data onto a USB key or accidentally send it to their spouse instead of to a client or something like that. And I think it's worth saying that the unintentional, the non-malicious, is by a significant amount far greater uh, than malicious. People are just trying to do their jobs as best they can. Right. So when we talk about insider threats, we are excluding third-party ne'er-do-wells or malicious actors from the from the cycle, from the supply chain. I don't know if you can call it that. But yeah, you know that's I mean? right. It's right. it's quite literally insider. So it's it's you know if if, if there's a third party involved and they are asking you to divulge secrets or they're they're tricking you then that's that sort of falls into a different category they're socially right. engineering you you know it's fishing uh spear fishing all those other sort of various names that uh, we security professionals like to give it whereas the insider threat like i said the vast majority is wholly unintentional and it's purely because of of ignorance uh fear you know they they're they're fearful for their jobs if they don't do something right uh, or quite literally, they are just trying to get their job done, and they don't realise that uh, that copying data onto a, an unencrypted USB stick or something like that is is actually not allowed, and is is letting data out. And then, of course, you got the good old fashioned Mark One human mistake, uh, which we all do, uh, and you know we accidentally email data to the wrong party or like in lawyers circles or, or legal circles you, you email it to the uh, uh to the opposing counsel rather than to your colleague for instance yeah so, or you reply all i've done that, that reply one. all that's a brilliant example <laughs> a reply all is such a good one because before you know it everybody's got um your innermost thoughts about uh everyone else who you didn't really mean to to include yep. It happens to a lot of people, the reply all problem. I'm sure. I don't know if there's fail safes today in big organizations, but God, I think it would happen. I worked in a big organization. It happened weekly. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course you get you and this this is, you know, almost the lighter side of it. You then get the chains of stop replying all, stop saying reply all to reply all, you know, all that yeah, sort of thing. But exactly. But exactly. but really, you know, there are 
in certain mail systems now, there are there are sort of uh, capabilities that will say, are you sure you want to do that? It looks like you've got a document attached uh, that people you shouldn't have access to, et cetera. You know, and so all of there's there's lots of different things that can be done to minimize this. But really, you know, and some of it is technical, but really what it comes down to is is behavioral change, you know, uh, and education and awareness. Yeah, because I was going to ask you before we, we wrap up, what can a typical employee, right? So someone who's in the office or someone yeah. who's working from home, um, what kind of things would you look out for and what would you do with that information? Yeah, so it's it's anything – well, actually, I'll go back. The problem with a lot of this is that the you know our security departments, they're often underfunded. They don't have enough people. Security training and education, et cetera, is often seen as an afterthought or, you know, you get put in a room once a year for an hour and have a PowerPoint shouted at you and told what not to do and all that <laughs> sort of thing. And so to a certain extent, you know, organisations have themselves to blame for this because they are not giving people the tools that they need to to address this. So one thing, I, you know, one thing that people can do is actually start asking the questions. Do we have training is there educational material out there that we can access that allows me to make better decisions? That's one side. The other side, of course, is there's very often in companies you get this cultures of blame where if somebody says, uh-oh, I accidentally emailed this to the wrong people, then they're immediately put on, you know, disciplinary or they're yeah. warning, yeah. whatever. Whereas actually what we should be doing is, is embracing that because we want people to tell us about mistakes. We want people to tell us that there's something that may well happen because of an action that they accidentally took on the horizon, rather than when that problem is jumping up and down on our feet right in front of us. And of course, if you do discipline people for admitting their mistakes, people won't admit their mistakes. And then those problems are just going to get bigger and bigger until they're massive and jumping up and down on your feet. Couldn't say it better myself. Tom Langford, London Insurance Markets. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> this was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. Joe, what do you think? You know, I really like the definition that Tom provides here, that an insider threat is when someone misuses access uh, to gain information or to gain something. The only differentiating factor is that this person is not an external actor. They're an internal person, and they're solely working on their own uh, without without the control of an external actor. So that is, he's differentiating between a, a social engineering attack where someone's being manipulated and an in insider threat where somebody is doing something that may or may not be malicious, uh, which is another important distinction. I like that Tom makes the distinction between malicious and non-malicious. Some of these non-malicious examples are just unintentional actions or just getting around the controls that are in place to help you do your job more quickly. Right, right. <laughs> I would say that if you have people trying to get around your security controls to do their job, you need to reevaluate your security controls. Yes. But, you know, it, it, it's unique for each individual organization. Yeah. Uh, another distinction that, that Tom makes here is this is not new. None of this is new. It's just happening in new ways. And this is a, a point that, that Tim Leschke makes when he's talking about, um, he's our forensics instructor. One of the things he says is that we're not talking about new crimes. We're just talking about new ways to commit old crimes and new ways that evidence is gathered and, pro and processed. Mm. Um, 
aside from that, it's the same old crimes and the same old behaviors that people are doing. And that's the same with insider threat. But since we've been moving towards this technology and having, having all these technological pieces out there, servers and, and networks and all this stuff, one of the big issues is that people have access to so much. I mean, I remember when I was uh, first working in a corporate environment, a friend of mine said, hey, look at all this stuff that's just sitting out there on the network. And you could browse people's, what they thought were private folders on the network. They were network folders. I could see everything that was on the network. And that was just the way it was set up. Yeah. It's very important to use the principle of, of least privilege as a concept and then to implement it. And that's really the more important part is implementing it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and making sure that those controls are in place so that not just anybody can walk into a, a, a document repository and look at all the documents. You know, if you have, if you have a, a contracts department that's working on bidding a new contract or something, there's, there's absolutely no reason why somebody in maintenance who, is, uh, who works on existing contracts needs to know anything about it. Right. right. Make sure that people, only the people that need to have access to the, to the documents have access to it. I also like that Tom talks about how some of these non-malicious activities can be due to ignorance or fear. And then, of course, there is the, what like he calls the, calls the, uh, the very basic unintentional mistake, you know, the human, human error. Right. And our favorite example of this is the reply all. <laughs> oh, how I hate the reply all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's an excellent control against this, and that is whenever you send a message to a large group of people as a business uh, as a business communications person, copy everybody blind, blind carbon copy everybody, and then put yourself in the to address if you're going to do that. Yeah, uh, because that way, when they click reply all, the only person that gets the reply is you. Or don't put anybody <laughs> in the in the to address, and that way, when they click reply all, they don't get any anybody. Yeah, there, there are simple controls you can put in place to prevent these kind of attack or these kind of leaks. And there's also simple controls you can put in place to uh, stop a lot of the other uh, unintentional or even malicious uh, action. And of course, um, like I said before, principle of least privilege is, is king among those. Also, you're trying to uh, change behavior with, with uh, training and awareness, uh, security training and security awareness and security awareness training. And one of the big things that Tom talks about here. When somebody makes a mistake, people are going to make mistakes. When they make those mistakes, penalizing reporting the mistake is itself a huge mistake because you're going to disincentivize the reporting of mistakes, uh, which means that, that you're not going to be able to get out in front of a mistake in the future. You're not going to be able to, uh, to, to take control of the situation until it's too late. So when somebody comes to you and says, I just screwed up, here's what I did, you go, the first words out of your mouth should be, Thank you. Thank you for telling me that you screwed up. I really right. appreciate the honesty. Let's work to get this cleaned up. At some point in time, you should say people make mistakes because people are prone to do so. You know, it's just it's just human nature. We're going to make mistakes. Now, I say this like a blanket statement sitting here in my in my ivory tower of academia, but I so I understand that there are other places out there where that may not be an option. And you have to do your own risk assessment uh, and evaluate the risks for your environment to make sure that that's something you can you can do. And I've yeah. had people write us and say, you know, I can't do that in this environment. And I understand the reason and the use case. And you're right. Sometimes people are expected their job conduct, part of their part of their job description rather, is is maintaining the security of information. And if if you're just emailing that out willy-nilly, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
All right. Well, again, our thanks to Carol Terrio for bringing us that conversation with Tom Langford. Uh, good stuff, and we appreciate both of them taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at hackinghumans at n2k.com. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.